Let's pray together, shall we? Father, that is our desire to trust you more and to follow your word. Thank you for the wonderful example of Mary and Joseph at the time of our Lord's birth when they had such little information and yet special revelation to know your will. And they did what you asked them to do. Help us to model that. Father, encourage us today as we revisit once again the most familiar of stories in our Bibles, the story of the birth of our Lord Jesus, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would be encouraged in our walk with Christ, that we would with great courage and conviction follow after King Jesus. It's in his name that we've asked these things. Amen. Well, the year was 1809. The month was February. The exact day was February 12, 1809. Years later, when the individual who was born on this day became famous, the neighbors would talk about that day, and they remembered it being a relatively mild winter's day. If there was snow on the ground, they don't recall that there was very much. On February 12, 1809, in Hodgenville, Kentucky, a young married couple named Tom and Nancy Hanks Lincoln welcomed a little baby boy into their mud-chinked log cabin, a very humble dwelling, hand-hewn logs chinked with mud, a frame of only 16 feet by 18 feet, out in the country, very small, very simple family. And there they held in their hands their brand new baby, Abraham. A number of years later, the young woman who at the time of Abraham's birth would have been 20 years old, her name was Peggy Walters, and she was a neighbor lady who was called upon to assist in the birth. Many, many years later, of course, the Lincolns had moved away not long, really. Early in Abe's childhood, they moved on. But many years later, there was a picnic on the grounds nearby where that cabin stood. Someone asked Peggy Walters if she remembered that day. And she said, oh yes, I remember. She said, after the baby was born, Tom came and stood there beside the bed and looked down at Nancy lying there so pale and so tired and he, he stood there with that sort of hangdog look that a man has, sort of guilty-like, but mighty proud. And he says to me, are you sure she's all right, Ms. Walters? And at that point, Nancy kind of stuck out her hand and reached for his and she said, yes, Tom, I'm all right. And then she said, you're glad it's a boy, Tom, aren't you? So am I. There was no way for Tom and Nancy to have any idea that the baby they held in their arms that day and the little boy that they welcomed into their cabin was a president. And not just an ordinary president, but one of the greatest presidents that would ever serve in our highest office. It's somewhat with that mindset that as I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1 that we have to recognize that Mary and Joseph could have hardly known, even though they had insight, they were understanding that uh, the Messiah was being delivered through them, that, that they had a special role and assignment from God Himself. How could they have known the ramifications and the significance of the baby they held in their arms that night in that little stable, most humble of places, maybe even more humble than that 16 by 18 log cabin with mud chinking. A little stable where animals were fed and cared for and no doubt hay or straw and feeding areas was used for a manger area for a crib. That they held, Joseph and Mary did, held in their hands that night, not a president, but a king. They held in their hands, not just a king, 
But as the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not just the King, but the King of all kings. Not just the Lord, but the Lord of all lords. This baby, Jesus. As we use as our text this morning, Luke's account of the revelation to Mary by the angel that she indeed had been chosen to be the mother of our Lord. What an incredible, humbling privilege And Mary responded so appropriately. Let's read, and I recognize this is such familiar reading to you. Let's let's ask God to refresh us through this familiar story as we remind ourselves in our series on worship, not about the cost of worship, yes, indeed, about the source of our joy in worship, but let's focus this morning and this Christmas season as we worship on the King whom we worship. It was in the sixth month, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it was in the sixth month that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Let's pause just a minute. It's interesting that in the Greek, that phrase translated into English, O favored one, is a word that you know here at Fellowship Bible Church. It's the word cheris. Pastor Mark's wife's name is cheris. It's a word that means grace, special gift, favor. O favored one, cherished, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, Mary was, at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Now watch the language. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, Well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was also called barren. Or who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Is that precious? Is that so precious? And the angel departed from her. Well, what a remarkable story. Though familiar, it still just warms our hearts as we recognize that this is the intersection of man at his point of greatest need and God at his point of cherished grace, delivering man from his sin problem by giving a Savior, the Savior of the world. If you have your notes nearby and a pen in position to write, it might help you as you listen. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is that we have uh, the text identifying this baby. The baby's identity is the first thing we see. And, And before we look back at our text and see embedded in the passage the revelation of of who this baby really is. Not a president, but a king. Before we see that, let's just acknowledge that, that as the prophets of old in our Old Testament wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that they looked forward to this birth. They gave information in a forward view before it ever happened acknowledging that a king would come. Yes, Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior of the world. But there's an emphasis, even in prophetic writing, looking forward to Messiah's birth, that this baby would be a king. 
You know these passages. There are many, by the way. I've just selected three familiar passages. The most familiar is in Isaiah. Will you turn with me in your Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 9, please? And you know this because it's often quoted on Christmas cards or read in cantatas or musicals at Christmas time. It's part of what we consider the, the Christmas passages of Scripture. And the first prophet that we have who anticipated a king is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Look what it says. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Notice the emphasis on, on governance, on, on leadership, political type leadership. The idea of royalty. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his, here's the word, kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah, in looking forward, writing specifically in prophetic passage here about the birth of Messiah, is talking about something that is more than just an ordinary person this baby that will be born, who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, isn't that an interesting title for our Lord Jesus? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of His government, and notice the emphasis on this forever nature of His kingdom, He shall govern from the throne of David over His kingdom. He has a kingdom, so He's a king, and He's a king, and He has a kingdom, let me tell you. And it's a forever kingdom. Well, there's another prophet that spoke. His name is Zechariah. And uh, you don't know that you know it, but you know this passage as well. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Let's read it and I'll bet you'll recognize when you hear this text most often read. It's quoted in the New Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. Now you have a little more trouble finding Zechariah. Turn to your right from Isaiah. You'll come to it. Isaiah 9, 9. The prophet wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Oh yeah, you got it now, don't you? This is the Palm Sunday reference. On that Sunday or Monday, whichever it was, before a Good Friday, right before our Lord went to the cross, there He comes into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, a young colt, and there they shouted out for their king, didn't they? And Zechariah prophesied that many years before. You have a king coming to town. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and let's hear from the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel. Now you've got to go to the historical passages for this. So turn to your left. Uh, it's about a third of the way into your Old Testament. You have 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. They are in just the most interesting, fascinating historical account of Israel and its kings. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with verse 12, we have here, excuse me, 2 Samuel, I said first, I think, turn to 2 Samuel, um, chapter 7, beginning with verse 12. What we have here is we have uh, the prophet Nathan speaking on behalf of God, revealing to David that God has made a promise to him. We call it a covenant. The Davidic covenant is spelled out here, and it is an everlasting promise to David. Now let's read it. It's it's easy to understand. Now, at some point in the passage, you're going to realize that he's got to be talking about Solomon, his son, King David's son. You know this King David, the one who killed Goliath with a stone and a sling. The greatest king that Israel ever had. Man after God's own heart. 
But also in the passage, it has to be speaking about someone other than just Solomon. You'll see what I, what I mean. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, Nathan is speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so Nathan is speaking, it's a euphemism for death. When you lie down with your fathers, there will be a day, David, when you will live out your days and you will be lying down and you will breathe your last breath and you will be put down with your fathers in the grave. But you need to know, God is saying to him, that I'm going to make a promise that springing genetically from your body through your lineage I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon did that, right? Remember, David wanted to build the temple and Solomon is the one who fulfilled that desire. God held back on David because of the blood on his hands. He was a warrior. He shall build my house, a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's that emphasis. This is a king with a kingdom and it's a forever kingdom. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. Now you say, if this is talking about Christ, when did Christ commit sin? Well, he never did commit sin in the literal sense that we understand. We do recognize, don't we, that he was beaten with rods, our Lord Jesus was, wasn't he? He was beaten with rods and cat of nine tails. But when he hung on the cross, remember last week we talked about that important gospel concept of him being the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, where at one point when we sat in the chair of execution, responsible for our own sinfulness and unable to do a thing about it in the eyes of a holy and righteous God, from which comes the mandate, the wages of sin is death. You're dead, man. You're dead. You can't get out of the dead man chair. Until what happened? Until God sent His only Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sin. He went to the cross. He hangs on the cross. And there, remember we talked about this just last week, all of the sins of the past, all the sins of the future are placed upon Him as though Jesus committed iniquity. And the sins of the world were upon Him. And by God's grace, through faith, no works of our own, we are justified, we are cleansed, we are forgiven when we look to Jesus and live. And we're taken out of the chair of condemnation and execution and death. And we're seated in the chair of favor because Jesus bore our sin upon the cross. That's the significance of the birth of Christ, that he went to the cross. If you come tonight, you'll see during communion that there's going to be a picture on the screen of a manger and cast across the manger is the shadow of a cross. Because he came to die. And that's what Nathan is telling David. That out of you will come, I'm promising you this, God says to David. Out of your line, out of your offspring will come a son. I will be a father to him, God says. So it's, there's dual fulfillment here, both in David's literal sons who would sit on the throne, and then later on, Jesus, who is of the line of David, and he will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the Son of Men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's that king language. He's the king who's coming. He's going to have a kingdom and he's going to have a throne. And we write songs about this stuff. The most famous is from Handel's Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords. The forever king who is our king today. And there's Mary and Joseph holding this baby.
clearly with no great ability to understand exactly the extent of the kingdom here and the king. We're back in Luke chapter 1. And uh, in Luke's gospel, we also have this language of royalty, this kind of language that is so evident when we read the passage that you can't come away from it and, and not realize well, there's the baby. It's Jesus. He's Messiah. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. But he's a king. I don't think we think about this enough. So the prophets anticipated a king. Isaiah did. Zechariah did. Nathan did. And then the angel in his announcement to Mary comes. And what a moment that must have been in this young girl's life. She's, what, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, 15 years old, 16 years old. And notice the language, verse 32 in Luke 1. Well, in verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. In Matthew, Gabriel reveals this to, Matthew, to, to Joseph. In Matthew's account, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Yahweh saves. He will be great, verse 32, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Well, the first thing the angel says that is so distinct about Jesus is he will be great. And you say, well, that's not that distinct because earlier in Luke chapter 1, when the same angel comes to Zechariah, the priest, and, and his wife Elizabeth is going to become pregnant with John the Baptist, another significant birth because of their age, he was told there, your baby will be great about John the Baptist. He will be great. Well, but he didn't say what he says about Jesus. Look, he will be great and he will be called son of the most high. He never said that about John the Baptist because he wasn't son of the most high. Clearly, Mary is hearing the language and understanding it's part of the mystery. Later on when it says, and Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart, surely the words of the angel is part of that that she's wondering about. She's finding clarity about the revelation that God is giving. And what does that mean? He shall be great. Well, I already referenced what Paul said in 1 Timothy not only is he just going to be a, a great king, but he's going to be the king of all kings. Not only is he Lord, but he's Lord of all lords. So he's going to be great in that he's the greatest king and the greatest Lord that will ever rule. John the Baptist is just a great man. And he will be son of the Most High. That idea in the Semitic mind in the Middle East at this time in Israel, to be someone's son... That idea that he will be called Son of the Most High. It was the idea of, of a sameness. It would be the way we would think of, at least some of us who are a little older, we would think of the idea of carbon copy. Now, that's an expression we still use sometimes, and most of our young people have no idea what a carbon copy is. You can Google it later. <laughs> a carbon copy, what does that mean? It's something that's a little different, but it's the same. Well, in my typing class, my senior year of high school, Vicksburg High School, 1978, red and white, fight, fight. Yes, sir. So I'm in there on my manual typewriter. And our teacher showed us how to get a piece of paper out. And if we wanted to make a duplicate, we didn't have to retype the whole thing. You know, there was a time when there was no such thing as a copy machine like you know it. Way back in the 70s. When the snow was deep and we walked uphill both ways to school. In the old days, in 1976, the 200th birthday of our nation. It was the 200th, wasn't it? It's not in my notes. Carbon copy, you take the paper and, and it was like that tissue-like paper and it had like inky on the back. And in the old days, the old stuff that my mom used to have when I was a little boy, I'd play with it and get all over my fingers. And when in, in the modern days, in the late 70s, it was pretty slick and kind of waxy and it didn't rub off on your hands. And you put that in there and then you put another piece of paper. And so then you really hit that manual typewriter hard so that not only were you typing 
through your ribbon, your ink ribbon, the letter or document that you are typing, but it is now imprinting. The, the weight of the key is imprinting the shape of the key on the carbon paper, which is leaving the impression of the embedded ink on the back of the carbon paper on the final sheet of paper. And so when you whip it out of your, I think you call it a carriage, there you have two documents. You throw away the carbon copy, you have the original, and you have the carbon copy, and you look. And you can tell a difference, but they're both the same. And so when Mary is told by Gabriel the angel that you will, he will be son of the Most High, he will be a carbon copy of the Most High. He will be an imprint. He will be a visual imprint of the Most High. Isn't that interesting? Uh, she had enough insight to know that something's going on here that is most unusual. So he will be great. Not only will he be great, but he'll be so great that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He's going to have a throne. And from that throne, verse 33, he will reign. He's a king, so he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so there it is, this, this language of, of a king. He will be great. He will have a throne. He will reign. His kingdom will have no end. And there it is, right in the pronouncement of the angel to Mary. There's another familiar passage. We've already looked at it. You don't even have to turn there. It's Matthew chapter 2. It's verses 1 and 2. And it's the Magi. The Magi were in search of a king, weren't they? The Magi were in search of a king. They didn't come looking for anything other than a king. In God's revelation to them, however he did that, through some prophetic writings, through, um, through the oral uh, history that was passed down to them, they knew that they were looking for a king. And when they get to town, who do they do? They go and they, they find King Herod. They talk and they ask, hey, we're here and we are looking for this baby who's going to be born king of the Jews. That's who we're looking for. The baby king of the Jews. And so they brought gifts that were suitable for a king as well, didn't they? And so clearly embedded in the Christmas story is the reality that baby Jesus was not a president, but he was a king. And before we apply that to our lives a little bit further, there's a couple other points in the story that I wanted to draw out. And immediately Mary responds to the message of the angel hearing this, that he will be a carbon copy of the God Most High. He will reign and rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary says to the angel, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? You know, once again, it's a, there's a similarity between Mary's question and what was going on with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Do you remember when the angel came and appeared to Zechariah? He was a priest, and he had been chosen to represent the people in a very special way by being in the Holy of Holies. And he's in there, and the angel, uh, Prophet Gabriel, appears to him then, and he says, You, my man, are going to be a father. And your wife Elizabeth, who is great with age, is going to have a baby for you. And what does, Zechari what does Zechariah the priest say? Um, I don't think so. It's not exactly how he said it. But when he said, how is this going to be? The angel says, oh, you don't believe me? And basically Zechariah in his heart saying, no, you don't understand. I am essentially a corpse of a body. And my wife is far beyond bearing children. And not only that, all of our lives, even in our youth, we were unable to have children. So it was a miraculous birth, but this is a physical birth based upon biology and male and female togetherness. But when Zechariah questions the angel with his message, the angel looks at him and what does he say? He says, all right, you don't believe me? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to touch your mouth and you're not going to be able to speak now until the baby's born. So every day when you get up and you try to ask for your coffee and for sugar and cream, you're not going to be able to say it. You're going to remember that you doubted this moment. And the day that the boy is born, you're going to get your speech back. And that's why John wrote on the tablet, remember, his name shall be called John. 
So when Mary questions the angel, it wasn't like Zechariah. Mary clearly had faith. What a model of faith she is. Mary simply asked a very reasonable question. All right, this is going to happen. But if I don't know a man, how is it going to happen? Could you please just let me know a little bit of what this is going to look like? And we have this unbelievable answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. That's the amount of information we have in this modest explanation of how she will be impregnated. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that's how it's going to happen, Mary. She believed it. And this is no intercourse of the gods. This is the reality that in some mysterious, marvelous way, there was an actual physical conception by the Holy Spirit that in no way redefined her purity. She was a pure virgin. And she becomes pregnant with this all-man, all-God child. Now, theologians call that the hypostatic union. Um, that's how the Bible explains it, and that's about all the explanation. A lot of trees have been turned into pulp, pressed out into paper, and drums of ink printed out on there discussing what this is and how it works. Uh, If you ask me, I'm going to say, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of the Most High will overshadow her and she will be with child. But Tom Jester will be happy to stand in the foyer later and answer any questions you have about the hypostatic union and uh, bring a cup of coffee and a notepad and a pen because I'm sure he'll have a lot to say. And uh, and I mean that. Um, I don't know if he'll stay or not, but... uh, That's about all I know because that's about all the Bible says right there. And so Mary is questioning for clarity, isn't she? She's questioning for clarity, not out of doubt. And young people, I think there's a good lesson here that as we seek God's will and as the Word of God is given to us and we have the Word of God given to us and we don't always understand God's Word and we want to seek clarity, I think it's very, very legitimate for you to go before your Heavenly Father and say, Lord, would you clearly show me your will for my life? Now Mary had the advantage of the, of the angel Gabriel there to answer her questions. And that's pretty slick operation that she had gone, but you don't get to enjoy that, young people. But you have just as sure a word from God as the word from the angel Gabriel. And so don't doubt the word. Don't do like Zechariah. Do like Mary. Okay, Lord, I believe you. Um, now how's this going to work? How's this going to work? If I go over there and I do this and I do that, I might never get married. How's this going to work? I don't like that plan. Well, you got to do like Mary and you just have to trust the Lord and take him at his word and don't doubt. And you know, young people, I have found in my life that often as I pursue God's will and I'm moving forward, it's not nearly so clear as when I turn around and look back and I say, oh yeah, now I see what God was doing. You just be faithful like Mary. And you maintain your purity. You maintain your usability. You just be the young person God wants you to be. And you keep obeying and following in faith. And then one day you're going to turn around and you're going to say, God has been faithful. That's what the rites were singing about this morning, right? The road ahead isn't very clear. It's called the road to impossible. And in fact, it comes from this passage, doesn't it? Let's read on. Because we have not only in Mary a question for clarity, we have in Mary a model of humility. A model of humility. She has this exchange going with the angel Gabriel, and and then he reminds her about Elizabeth. And then the answer is in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. We always want explanation. God says nothing will be impossible And then Mary says, and here she is, a model of humility. Look at this. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
How wonderful is that? You talk about a servant's heart and a surrendered heart. There's the picture. You said it. May it be so. And so we have, young people, a model of humility in Mary, a model of surrender, a a model of servanthood. But let's take this home with us, this concept of, of the baby was a king. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and, and the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, a, it is an extensive topic. At one point in the Gospel of John, Jesus looks at his listeners and he says that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. We know in Acts chapter 1 that when the disciples were with the Lord right before he ascended into heaven, they said they're one of the last questions they ask him is they look at him and they say, Lord, is today the day you're going to set up your kingdom? We know in Matthew 20 that the disciples argued over who would sit closest to the throne in his kingdom and be the greatest in his kingdom. And there's, there's a lot to this subject. But in the last few minutes, let's just, let's just take away from the simple reading of the text that born in Bethlehem that day was a king and his name was Jesus and he's our king. And because he's a king, he has a kingdom and you want to be a part of that kingdom and a king makes demands on those within his kingdom. And so we are a people living under authority, aren't we? We're a people, Roman number four, living under authority. The king has demands. The first of those demands we find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. I I forgot to write Matthew down there next to 5. I thought that you would not think we had been to church this morning if we didn't turn in our Bibles to Matthew. Um, So Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. For those of you who are visiting, we've been in Matthew on Sunday mornings for about four and a half years. And uh, we've been taking a little bit of a break from it, but we find our way back there. All roads lead back to Matthew. Um... In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, as we think about living under the authority of a king, that's who Jesus is, our Lord, our Master. Think about the language we use when we use that. He's my Lord. If He's my Lord, then I'm His serf. I'm His servant. It's to do loss. If He's my Master, then I do what He says. If He's my King, then He owns me. In the Beatitudes, one of the things he reminds us of is that those who are in his kingdom have an attitude adjustment, a changed attitude. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's just one little sampling of the idea that when you enter the kingdom of Christ, You have to change your attitude. It is interesting. I didn't put blanks in there for you to fill out, but I want you to listen. The idea of an attitude change is very much the definition of repentance. And it reminds us when our Lord started and launched His public ministry, what were the first sentences recorded out of His mouth? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was almost an identical quote from John the Baptist, the forerunner who came pronouncing and announcing ahead of time, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John loved hellfire and brimstone preaching, and he went on with his message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's going to winnow you, and I hope he pitches you in hell, Jonathan's thinking. John, John the Baptist was, a, he was always fighting somebody. He was strong, fire, hellfire and brimstone preacher. Our Lord didn't say that part. Our Lord comes and he says, Okay, today's the day you've got to wake up and realize that uh, the kingdom of heaven is right here. And what do you do? You change your attitude. You repent. What does repent mean? Repent means to change your attitude and turn away from your sin and start thinking about your sin the way God thinks about your sin. Agreeing with God, you are in agreement with God now about sin. You're changing your old attitude and the old ways are going to die and you're going to take on a new life following the king. You have to change your attitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said. This 
attitude change. Let's illustrate this in Luke's gospel. In Luke 18, there's a story here. Let's illustrate it. Um, And this is a familiar story. It is a powerful story. In my Bible, it's titled The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. It's Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9. And Jesus told this parable to some. Listen to this. You might be in this group. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. It's a real problem that we have. Of trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. And they treated others with contempt. That's another real problem we have. Thinking we're better than other people. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors, by the way, were despicable people in this day. We're going to see another illustration of that in a moment. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Oh, I thank you. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this despicable tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I put a, what's the most expensive color bulb? I don't even know, on the tree. I give, I do this, I do that. This is a guy who's the king of his own kingdom. This is a guy who's never had an attitude adjustment. This is a guy who has never humbled himself and changed his mind. Jesus goes on in the story and he says, but look at this guy over here. He's a tax collector and he's at the temple that day and we don't know what's been going on in his life. But somehow God's gotten a hold of him finally and he comes in brokenness. And he realizes what a despicable tax collector he really is. In fact, he doesn't disagree with the Pharisees' conclusion. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Have you ever been that broken? Have you ever been so broken that you were ashamed to even lift your eyes to God? It's really not a bad position to be in. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you in the kingdom if you're that broken. Look what he says. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the backwards kingdom of Jesus. You have to agree with God that you are a broken, dirty, rotten sinner. And you're so ashamed of your sin that you won't even look up and you just... place you can get rid of that is at the foot of the cross and that's where you have the ultimate attitude adjustment and you take on a whole new attitude under the authority of King Jesus and secondly you have to reorder your priorities you have to reorder your priorities and let's just quickly look at this it's not difficult to understand this is Back in Matthew, once again, Matthew chapter 6 and and verse 33. Again, I forgot to write down the word Matthew there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Look what it says. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first this kingdom. If Jesus is our king and we're in his kingdom, then our priorities are arranged around his priorities. Everything that he's about is what I'm about. And notice what he says in the column to the left there in my Bible is verse 19 of chapter 6. Do not now lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. So you've got to have a transformed heart. It changes your priorities. Listen, did you ever recognize the fact that the way you handle your money is one of the clearest indicators in the New Testament of where your heart is spiritually before the king? That if Jesus is king and he owns you and he's Lord of your life, it actually shows up in the most indicative way in the way you handle your treasures. We have another illustration in Luke's gospel on this. You don't have to turn there. It's Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. You know this story pretty well. In fact, you know a song about it. 
If you've been around Sunday school very long, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the master he wanted to see. And so Jesus comes walking down the boulevard. There's a big crowd, and Zacchaeus, evidently small in stature, climbs up in the tree so that he can get a good view of this miracle worker, this guy who can calm the sea with a word, this one who can speak a word and make a man who's in his 40s, who's been born blind, instantly see. What a wonderful Lord Jesus. And our Lord walks up and He says, Zacchaeus! You come down, for I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house today. You know, we don't know Zacchaeus' story, really. We just know that he was a tax collector, and as a tax collector, he was a thief. He was able to embezzle off the people from whom he collected the taxes. He evidently had a ledger book, and he kept good, good records. And by the time Jesus goes to his house and deals with him, he's had a transformed life. And Jesus is now king of his life. And so Zacchaeus, in the story it says, goes out, and he finds all the people that he ripped off and embezzled. He had good records. And I don't think he just sent out a carbon copy letter to them, now that you know what a carbon copy is. I think old Zacchaeus went door knocking one day. And he knocked on the door and he knew exactly from his records what he had taken from these people. And when they opened the door, the smoke started coming out their ears. And their eyes squinted and their lips snarled. And Zacchaeus says, wait a minute. He looks him in the eye and he says, I, I came here today to tell you I am so sorry that I sinned against you. And I want to ask your forgiveness. And he reached in his pouch and he pulls out an envelope and he says, and by the way, I'm paying you back fourfold what I stole off of you. I bet you those snarling lips turned into a smile. They grabbed that envelope, shut the door and said, thank you. Well, what was going on there? A whole new set of priorities had taken over this man's life. He was no longer about himself. He was no longer about what he could store up. He was all about the king and his kingdom. He was all about surrender to his king. There's Zacchaeus, finally a whole new set of values. A whole new set of values. And we're all about, this is uh, Matthew 13 again. It's Matthew. I didn't write it down. Matthew 13. This is that story of the parables that Jesus told. They're very short. And the guy's evidently taking a shortcut across the field. He's got a stick. And he, and he hits something in the ground that kind of thunks like a hollow spot. And so he reaches down and digs and he opens up a treasure box. And it's full of gold coins or some kind of precious jewels and money, cash money. And he recognizes that somebody who was very wealthy buried a box in the ground to protect it. And then evidently died and uh, lost it and so the man covers it back up and he goes and he buys the land he sells everything he has to buy the land to get the treasure box the next story is almost identical and it's about a guy who's a pearl collector and he loves pearls and he's in a pawn shop or something one day and he finds out that there is the pearl of all pearls this is the pearl of greatest price right here he runs home and he says Mabel sell everything and he gathers up everything Mabel's not in the Bible but he sell everything he says sell everything because there's only one thing now that I value it's this, it's this pearl. And it's worth everything else. My whole value system has shifted. Jesus said, that's what it's like in my kingdom. He told those stories to illustrate his kingdom. This is how my kingdom is. So what is it that you're holding on to? What is it that you got your little, little fist grabbing on so tight that you won't give up? Because King Jesus might take it away from you. I want to tell you something. King Jesus never asks you to do anything that isn't in your best interest. King Jesus is a trustworthy king. He will never fail you. In fact, these are only a sampling of three demands from our king. There was like 19 in my original notes and I thought Sobolski would walk out before I finished the list. Really, there's hundreds of demands. And they're all in our best interest. 
And why would we want anybody else to be king? Why would we want to be our own ruler when we've got this King Jesus and his kingdom and we can participate in his agenda and we're part of his church, which is just one package inside of his kingdom. And he's going to come back as a king. This is his first coming. And he came in a manger, a little baby. Like Abraham Lincoln, this is the greatest president that's ever going to live. Ah, come on. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. That was his first coming. His second coming, everybody will know it instantaneously. We've been talking about it at the end of that tribulation period. There will then be a coming of of the Lord at his second coming. And the book of Revelation tells us he's going to come on a great white horse. And he's going to have his name written on his thigh. He's going to come as a warrior king and he's going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's going to come and he's going to wipe out the wicked of the world. And he's going to establish his kingdom on the throne of David, a very literal kingdom, a very literal throne in a very literal city, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, by the way. And there he's going to sit on his throne. And he's going to start a thousand year rule of reign after which he will once again deal with the rebellious hearts of the world once and for all, and then extend on into eternity future forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. This kind of king he is. Why would you fight against this king? And when we come to the manger this Christmas, that's who we're worshiping. This is not a feel-good story. This is the reality. The king of kings. And the Lord of Lords is my Lord Jesus. Amen? Will you stand with me? Let's close in prayer. And so, Father, as we sing our hymns, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. Would you help us to do that, Lord? to have an attitude adjustment, to reorder our priorities and to come in under a whole new set of values that we would sing with the hymn writer as well, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Father, we're mindful of the fact that it was a king in the manger and it was a king on the cross that he came to die for our sin. Would you help us to order our lives accordingly? To live with a joyful surrender to King Jesus. And may we worship this King this Christmas in a whole new way. Assist us in all of this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.